Hello, and welcome to Decision NYC with Ben Max. I'm Ben Max, your host and the executive editor of Gotham Gazette. The 2021 New York City election season is well underway, and it's poised to be the most significant municipal election in decades. All of city government is on the ballot, and because so few incumbents are eligible to run for re-election to their current seats due to term limits, New Yorkers are electing many new office holders and the next roster of leadership for our city. There will be a new mayor of New York City elected in 2021, as well as a new city controller, new borough presidents, and many new city council members. And that's not all that's on the ballot. There are a number of incumbents eligible for and seeking re-election, and there's a very crowded and competitive race for Manhattan District Attorney. Party primaries are set for June, and the general election in the fall will culminate on November 2nd. This is the first full set of municipal elections that will feature early voting as well as ranked choice voting, a system that applies only to party primaries and special elections. And we'll explain ranked choice voting in another show altogether. The city election cycle will be of enormous importance under even more usual circumstances, but it's unfolding at a time of great crisis for our city, raising the stakes of the decisions that you, the voter, will make. The new wave of city leadership will quite clearly help make or break the city's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, its devastation, its impacts on health, family, jobs, education, housing, much, much more. It's also important to note that the city faced a number of immense crises before the pandemic, and the next leaders of the city have to address longstanding issues as well as what the pandemic has brought. It's an important time of choosing here in New York City, so we're pleased to bring you this new series of interviews with the candidates running for mayor, as well as interviews with candidates for other offices. These one-on-one -on -one conversations will help you to get to know the candidates better, learn about their backgrounds, their platforms, their vision for New York City. We hope this and other interviews will help you sort through your many choices and make an informed decision when it's time to vote. So let's get to today's interview. Joining me now by Zoom is Ray McGuire, a Democratic candidate for mayor of New York City. Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Ben Max, thank you for having me. I have so much respect and admiration for all that you do, and you command so much respect in, in the world. So thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I'm looking forward to this discussion. So we have a good bit of time together, but it's going to fly by. So let's try to let's try to learn a lot about Ray McGuire and what you want to do for the city and what you've done before this race. So um, before we dig into your vision uh, for the city, how you would lead it, talk a little bit about your background. Why don't you take two minutes and, and give the overview to voters and viewers who may not know you, uh, where you come from and what you've been doing up until this point. And Max. Um, who I am is a product of my now 94-year-old mother who raised me in Dayton, Ohio, across the street from the Howard paper mill that sometimes emitted fumes that were so strong that the only way we could breathe was to open the refrigerator door. And my mother, along with my grandparents, raised me and my two brothers. At any point in time, we had a half a dozen foster children in our home. And as a social worker, my mother sometimes had a debate whether or not we would, uh, she would put food on the table or whether or not she would pay Dayton Power and Light, the gas and the utilities bill, or whether or not we put tithes and offering in the church. I know what it's like to have that kind of insecurity, if you will. I know what it's like to, to wash tin foil. I know what it's like to, at the end of the bars of soap, put bars of soap together so that you convince yourself that you have 
that you have a full bar of soap. I know what it's like not to have. I know the sacrifices that my mother made in order for me and my brothers to get an education. And I was the first one to uh, go and complete college. And education was the key to my success here. Without education, I wouldn't be here. In the sixth grade, I used to walk probably at beginning in the sixth grade. I walked probably three quarters of a mile to a mile to get to a bus that took me from the other side of the tracks where I grew up to a school in the suburbs. And then from sixth grade to 11th grade, I was at the school on scholarship. And uh, in the 11th grade, I had a 4.0 average. I averaged 24 points per game playing basketball and I was president of the school. And there was a teacher who said, if you're as good as they say you are, why don't you go test yourself against the big boys and girls in the East? And so I took a Greyhound bus around New England by myself at 16, looking at schools and landed at a school in Connecticut. And from there, I was able to go on and apply to colleges and was fortunate to get into colleges and went to Harvard College. And then a few years later, I went on to Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. And so, Max, I came, Ben, I came to New York with three things. I had uh, a great education. I had a lot of debt and I had no money. And New York has been good to me. So the sacrifices of my mother growing up on the other side of the track, where I know what it's like not to have. I know what it's like not to have. It is that foundation that got me here. And New York is a place where I met my wife and we're raising our three children. And I love New York. And New York has been good to me. It's allowed me to come here and compete on in one of the most competitive fields that exists anywhere and do that for four decades. And so I'm honored to be here. I'm fortunate to be here, but it's education and my mother's sacrifices that got me here. Appreciate that. Uh, so let's let's hear more about that uh, career you've had before this jump into politics. Uh, tell tell folks what you've been doing, and you know what how that translates for you into um, the possibility of running the city now that you're that you are running for mayor. You know, uh, Ben, when I started in this business is in 1984 in the client-facing side of the business and in the investment banking side of the business, which is where you have to advise, represent, and advise clients who are corporate clients around the world. And I did that from September of 1984 to October of 2020. And when I look back over the, that time there, I can remember that if I were to ask myself to uh, go to lunch with somebody who looked like me. There was perhaps one only other one other person only in the business on the client facing side. And so, four decades, I've been able to compete and been able to compete at the highest levels. For thirteen of those years, I was the longest standing head of banking in the history of Wall Street, in the history of corporate America, globally, the longest standing. So, I've managed through the crisis of the Great Financial Crisis and built a team. I've been able to manage budgets that are sometimes bigger than state budgets. And I've been able to advise the most sophisticated and demanding CEOs and boards that exist anywhere. And I've been able to build small businesses and big businesses and advise on that. And in addition to that, I've been able to invest in communities, invest in people like Franklin Thomas and Vernon Jordan and Dick Parsons on whose shoulders I stand and Gordon Davis on whose shoulders I stand they extended the ladder to me, and I've been able to extend the ladder to hundreds of mentees of mine who've now gone on to establish themselves as formidable leaders in, in industry. And I've invested in making certain that small businesses were able to grow. 
have invested in cultural organizations, arts organizations, arts education and cultural organizations. So I've been able to get capital into the communities and, 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 and foster the growth from entrepreneurs up to large businesses so that they too could participate. And I've moved people from no class to middle class to upper class, especially black and brown men and women. So for four decades in business, I've been able to extend that ladder. And if there's anything about which I take a tremendous amount of pride, it's those people who are coming after me who have been given the opportunity. And in education, I've been able to give the opportunity. Education and in healthcare, I've been able to give the opportunity and expand healthcare. At the height of the first wave of, of COVID, I was able to get PPE into, uh, into, into Brooklyn. I've been able to get food into Harlem Hospital. I was able to get the PPP to small businesses to make certain that they were able to participate, that I guide them through just that. And so I have a long history of, yes, having been in the corporate world, but I have a long history of having invested across the spectrum. Criminal justice system is yet another one. Artists for, uh, artists for justice, art for justice, one of the early investors there. So, so the I've been able to go from the streets to the suites and have an impact in both and be fluent in both. So, so as vice chairman at Citigroup, and, and as you just indicated, Citi's uh, global head of, of corporate investment banking, give us one example of a, of a big deal that you orchestrated or you advised on so people really understand what that looks like, what that is, what Ray McGuire, you know, what your sort of skill set is that you've been doing for this extended period of time that you just said was the longest on Wall Street. Um, what does that really look like? Can you give us one example before we, you know, talk a little bit more about um, how you would move over and do that for city government? Sure. Let me let me uh, on on that. Let me give you a couple. One in terms of budget, which is so critical here. We're facing a deficit that is going to be a material deficit, a big deficit. It means we have a hole in the budget, and I've been able to manage over the 13 years of running corporate investment banking at least 50 budgets that are sometimes bigger than state budgets. And I've had to manage, and, and what I say 50, because every year you have to manage your budget and you have to have a budget review every four years, every four months, every, every quarter, every quarter. And so that means if you miss your budget, that you don't get to, you know, your people don't get rewarded and you don't get rewarded. So it's not a popularity contest. You either meet or exceed your budget. And I've done that at the depth of the financial crisis. When it comes to transactions, there's one that you might recognize where I advise Time Warner. And Time Warner, I've advised that, been advising that company for quite some time through the, through the, the times when there were uh, people out there, activists who wanted to take the company over and, company, and companies who wanted to do a hostile transaction. And Time Warner was one of the last big transactions that I did, which was a $108 billion transaction where I advised them based on the technology that was in the marketplace, like Netflix and others, in order to survive that they needed to think about how they thought about their future. And the choice there was to become part of AT&T, $108 billion deal, the largest deal, the fifth largest deal in the history of transactions. And I've been able, fortunate, to be one of the advisors of Time Warner during a probably a 10-year stretch where they've seen all kinds of uh, adversaries try to take the company over. It was the right time in the technology spectrum for Time Warner to transition itself in order to survive 
in order to survive into the hands of AT&T. So that would be one to which I would uh, look and reference as an example of the kinds of transactions. And they're much smaller transactions that are done in order for these companies to survive and thrive. There's investments that we make in order for these companies to survive and thrive, the formation of these businesses. So that, that gives you some example of what I've been able to do and why that's so applicable. When you hear, and this is well predates your, your bid for mayor, of course, but also then kicks up again as you jumped into the race and you are running for, for mayor from this background, when you hear the vilification of Wall Street, the attacks, the criticism of you, but but again, well, you know, predating you, this is obviously uh, something that's been around Occupy Wall Street and, and prior. What do you think people get right, and what do you think they get wrong when they criticize Wall Street in general and the finance industry in general? A great question. What they get right is there are a number of people who have been misbehaviors. Uh, for whom, uh, and, and as a result of that, they've created some pretty negative impact on a whole bunch of people's lives. And they should be held accountable. They should be held accountable. That's what they've gotten right. What they've gotten less right is the impact that corporate America has had on the lives of so many. And now the importance of responsibility, stakeholder community responsibility, many corporations Many corporations have had this for some time. It's been highlighted with George Floyd and COVID. So at City, one of the largest affordable housing lenders, pathways of progress, making certain that summer jobs existed. There are a whole host of things that corporations do to invest in their communities. And they can do more, and they can do more. But there are a whole host of things that where they invest and where the participants, those people who, who work in corporate America, who have given back. And those things have, we've gotten that less right. So I think you need to make certain that you strike the balance. Clearly there, as I said, there are things that have gotten wrong and people are right to point those things out. People's lives have been negatively impacted. And those, those, those actors ought to be held accountable. But also think about where there's been investment and support and where the business community has stepped up. And it needs to continue to step up. Which I think today, given the crisis that we're experiencing, many of them are stepping up and we need more to step up and take on that responsibility and be held accountable. You mentioned helping the recovery out of the Great Recession, uh, the financial crisis. Is there anything looking back at that time? I'm sure you've done a lot of reflection on that, a lot of studying. Um, is there anything looking back at that time, uh, especially in terms of city's role, that you would, um, you know, are really aware of now in terms of saying we can't go down uh, this road again, we can't go down that road again. You know, there were some really big, um, you know, structural issues at play that needed more attention, and and you know, we really can't let happen again. And of course, as mayor, you know, you would have a very interesting perch, not necessarily to regulate Wall Street, but you know, to have a huge platform and bully pulpit, especially having come from there. Are there are there sort of big things that you want to make sure people know that you understand about what happened uh, a decade or so ago and that you would try to make sure never happens again? Yeah, I understand the impact that it had on many people's lives. I look at the history of, of uh, the impact. And so I felt that. I know that. I have many people who are displaced many of whom have yet to recover. So I get that. And given how I grew up, I certainly, as I referenced from the start, I certainly understand the pain 
and anxiety and the insecurity that gets caused. The, the analogy that I give to what occurred was that uh, we didn't have enough referees on the field. Didn't have enough referees on the field. So there, there, there are incidents that took place, many of them that should have drawn a red flag that went because you didn't have enough referees. They, they were not acknowledged. And In-house that, referees or external? Carney? I would, say, I, I would say both. Mm-hmm. The risk that you run now, which we ran, I think there's been some mitigation of that is having too many referees on the field. Mm-hmm. So you have to strike a balance. And you also need to manage risk and make certain that the people who are managing risk are people whose who's sole focus is on making certain they do the right thing and manage that risk. And so I think that that risk management was one of the things that we didn't get so right, which gets to the number of referees. And the thing that you don't want to do is so impede progress that you have too many referees on the field. And what I know is that you need to have the right systems in place that are accountable, that are accountable to the leadership, which would be accountable to me as the mayor, that would hold people accountable. And the systems that were were uh, enough so that you'd have people being held accountable. And, and so the accountability would be well known in metrics, factors that people were able to look at on a regular basis to make sure that the accountability was there. So yes, I have the experience. I wasn't directly involved. My business was not directly involved in this at all, mm-hmm. but I understand the implications. And I also understand the, the implications of the business almost going in the financial system, almost collapsing. So I do understand that it. I had a, it was you know it had an impact on me personally. So uh, and how is that impacting you personally? Sorry. Well, you know when 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 you're here and you have to manage people when you're the leader, and people's lives are impacted and they've invested in your leadership, then that's very personal. Although I had no responsibility for it, I am the longest standing head of banking, and so I have to look out for people. And when they when I was able to attract and retain some of the best talent, that talent decided for, on, on, on its behalf and its family's behalf to invest in my leadership. And I take that very personally, so, very personally. So in running for mayor, what, what, what do you bring to this race um, that other candidates don't? What do you think sets you apart in a way that you say, I'm, I'm not from politics, I'm coming in here, the, the city's in a moment of crisis, I think I can lead it out of the, the depths of, of this crisis, which obviously has many aspects to it. And as I said in the intro, there were several crises, big, big crises in this city even before COVID. What sets you apart and, and explain to folks um, both what sets you apart in, in your mind and you know, sort of the pillars of your vision for the city's recovery? So you're right. And one of the things that I have written the forward to is pre-George Floyd and pre-COVID, the impact of 400 years of systemic racism was on the U.S. economy, $16 trillion. I've written about that. And so what distinguishes me from the others is the recognition that the status quo, if we retain, if we rely on the status quo, that we're not gonna, we're not gonna move forward. We relied on the status quo and what's happened to black and brown people up to this point is for the past few years, there's been a reverse. They've gone backwards. Look at the amount of home ownership. Look at the amount of middle-class participants. We've gone backwards. So what do I bring that's different? I bring one, what they call the lived experiences. That's how I grew up. It's the foundation. I bring that. I bring a years of being successful in managing and leading. 
large and small businesses, investing and growing in large and small businesses. And I also bring years of relationships in the public and private sector that are gonna be needed in order for us to move forward and to, in order for me to lead the greatest economic, inclusive economic comeback in the history of this city, we will have to come together. Joe Biden, Kamala, and Vice President, uh, President Biden and, and Vice President Kamala Harris have spoken about this. That young woman who gave the, the, the who, who, who spoke the poem at the inauguration spoke about this. We need to come together. And the other part to this is I didn't get termed out. I'm not looking for promotion. And on October 15th, when I called my mother, 94-year-old mother, until I quit my job, that's a whole nother conversation. Boy, you have lost your mind. And what's behind this? And so I said, Mama, I love this city. It's where I met Crystal, as you know, and we're raising our three children. But right now, there's a crisis. And there is no plan B. There's no Calvary unless we, unless we do something now, unless we fix what's broken. And the status quo has not allowed us to do that. Unless we do this, Mama, we're going to be all. A wrong side of history. It's so going the wrong way. And what so, what are my vision? Pillars of that? Mm -hmm. My pillars are uh, economy. So, it's three it's economy, which is uh, go big, go small. It is safety, security, and quality of life, and it's education. And if you'd like me to go through each, I will. Yeah, let's let's okay. hear let's hear a couple of the principles. So, and, and what I'm most interested in is is what you just said about. I'm not the status quo. I'm coming from a successful business background. I don't need this, need to do this, but I want to help the city's recovery within those um, three buckets. What are the sort of principles of, you know, the, the aspects of transformational change that we could expect from you that we wouldn't get from others? Transformational change. First, it's a track record of having managed and led a track record of almost four decades of doing just that of leading and leading out of crises and managing budgets and growing businesses, growing enterprises, large and small. So my, my vision is on the economics, economic, no social justice, no economic justice. And what do I mean by that? We need to go big and go small. The economy this is the biggest crisis that we're facing. COVID, the economy, and all the desegregation and segregation issues that we're facing. Go big, go small. Go big means in the economy, and I will outline a plan, reveal, or, or kind of, of make public a plan that we have been working on for quite some time on the economy. Go big, go small. Go big is where I'm going to uh, go big, go small, create uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs that are focused on infrastructure, affordable housing, and technology, the city of the future. Going small, that's going big. Going small means focused on the small businesses that create 50% of employment in New York. One of out of three of down. And so we need to focus on that. I wanna create a red tape commission that focuses on the bureaucracy. I wanna invest in those small businesses by giving relief to workers and relief to those small businesses. Today, small businesses pay 100 cents on the dollar for utilities and then generating 10 cents on the dollar in revenue we need to be able to support those small businesses that are on Lifeline. And I will create an infrastructure that does just that. Today, the infrastructure doesn't work. It takes too long for a small business to get up and running. I wanna make, the, the, make small businesses clients of the city and make it easy for them to, to get the capital that's needed, either in the form of grants, loan interest, loans, or equity capital. So I have a plan for the economy 
to put New York to work and to grow. We need hard hats. We need shovels. We need we need cranes in the air. We need New York to grow. So fixing okay. the infrastructure. Go ahead. Safety, security, and quality of life. We need to fix the quality of life. Right now, there's a disconnect between the NYPD and the citizens. People don't feel safe. Quality of life has suffered. People are worried about how they're going to get to work. They're going to worry. They're worried about what they call food insecurity. I Means people are hungry. That's so why I want to. I want to address that directly. And people are homeless. So I want to address that directly. With respect to the NYPD, we need to change the culture. In my view, there's what I call RAP, <laughs> respect, accountable, proportionate. It has been said that if the only thing that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When it comes to black and brown communities, it often is a sledgehammer, which is not needed. And so we need to hold those people who are the serial abusers, misbehaviors, we need to hold them accountable. And we need to, we need to respond to each situation proportionately. And we need to demonstrate the respect. And my vision there is to make certain that we invest in, in mental health care professionals, four out of every 10 calls that go on to 911 have to do with mental health. I want to invest in the community-based organizations. I want to return to community policing, put those police in the communities so that you reestablish that trust. And I want to invest in the violence interrupters, the gang interrupters who can come in and deal with the gangs. Before we get to education, I just want to ask on policing, can you tell folks a little bit more about what kind of police commissioner you'd be looking for? And is there anyone out there who you would name that is an attractive candidate to you that, that's either in the city or outside? The, the answer, what kind of police commissioner I would look for would be a kind of police commissioner who would represent the culture that I've just outlined. That is a police commissioner who would have the force and her or himself be focused on respect, holding, holding the force accountable and responding to the situations proportionately. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of, of well-respected, admired, existing or former officers who, who we could think about, who we are thinking about as police commissioner. But the police commissioner has to, has to make certain that they fulfill the culture, that the cult is the culture for which I would want to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And that culture has to be completely aligned with the culture that I think is appropriate for this city. And I want to be held accountable. I want to be held accountable to restoring that trust because today it's been breached. And part of this is making certain that we uh, we address the 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 span of of criminal behavior, and so we can't we can't criminalize poverty. We simply cannot do that, which is what's taking place in most instances. Which is why the economic plan that I have no jobs, no city, no jobs, no dignity has to be what comes as the highest priority. Give our people jobs. When you say criminalizing poverty, I, I want to ask you know there there's. There's a debate about um, whether, you know, the sort of broken windows theory of policing uh, still applies and that we've perhaps seen in 2020 that uh, too much of a pulling back of, of policing has led to drastic consequences in the rise in shootings. There's obviously also been this huge socioeconomic public health dislocation, so they can't be viewed in a siloed way. But do you subscribe to the broken windows policing theory? You know, the answer to that is a black man, a 6'4", 200-pound black man who could get profiled any day, look at the impact of stop and frisk and broken windows on the lives of so many black and brown people. Just look at the impact. No, I do not stand for that. Mm -hmm. That's, that to me is, I have zero tolerance for that. 
We need to find a way to address a socioeconomic situation that leads into the life that, that I've described. Mm -hmm. The impact is grave unless you've, unless you've been, been involved in something like that. It's really difficult to fathom. When I was uh, going to, to uh, make the launch video for this campaign, three blocks from here, uh, I was pulled over with a black driver and me. So in the left hand, the police person has a radio in the right hand, close to the holster. We're unfortunate in our last couple moments here. Um, and, and so we'll have plenty of other conversations down the line, but uh, it was really good to hear your thoughts about your experience and how it translates to city government. Final, final two brief questions. One, if you had to give Mayor Bill de Blasio a grade for his tenure, a letter grade, what would it be? I would have, I would absent from giving that grade. I think the record will show, and those people who are who are um, looking at the record recognize the impact, and therefore they're going to be well positioned to give a grade. And um, lastly, can you name a political figure, past or present, who you consider a role model, uh, and and perhaps somebody who you see yourself sort of trying to emulate in both their political run for office and and if you win as mayor. You know, I would say in terms of the economy and an inclusive economy, it would probably be Maynard Jackson and what he was able to accomplish in Atlanta. When it comes to civic leadership, I would say Franklin A. Thomas, Vernon Jordan, Dick Parsons, Gordon Davis. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Ray McGuire, but we look forward to uh, other conversations down the line. We're going to be looking for the details in that economic plan you mentioned, uh, looking forward to, to that coming out. And by the time some folks see this, that might already be out. So they should, they should check your website for that. Uh, but thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. So right. appreciate it. And thank you for watching Decision NYC with Ben Max. Key decisions for New York City voters are coming up in June and the fall. There's a lot on the line for all of us in the future of New York City. I hope this conversation was helpful to you. I'm Ben Max. See you next time.